listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. I'm very excited today um, because... Uh, we have a special guest. Uh, I'll invite him to the stage in just, just a second, but just a, a couple of words about uh, Bishop Ed Gunger. So Ed is a, a bishop in the community of evangelical Episcopal churches. Um, he is uh, from, or he's living now in New York City, uh, but he's been in Wisconsin, he's been in Oklahoma, he's pastored a couple of, of great churches, and he's written some fantastic books uh, he's become a recent friend of mine. He's a long-term uh, friend of Chris Green, uh, who we love and uh, is part of our community. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was in Tennessee, and we were out to eat, and uh, Chris said to Ed, you should come visit uh, the college here in town where we teach. And I'm like, yeah, and if you come around the weekend, we'll have you preach at the church. And I, at first I thought, he, you know, I thought, well, no, that, that, won't be, that won't happen. And then he's like, yeah, sure. And so I'm really delighted uh, to, to welcome uh, Bishop Ed Gunger and have him speak to us today. Bishop. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I was thinking about my, you know, living in, in New York City. I think my favorite Christmas movie is Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> um, Advent, the seasons of the year that the church highlighted because there's something very powerful about how we orient ourselves to the calendar. Most of us as Americans know that when it comes to Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, a lot of our choices about vacations, family gatherings are associated around the calendar. Well, that was been true historically around the world. And... Um, the church pretty early on said, you know, we should, we should sort of organize our lives around the story of Jesus. And so we had this emergence very early on of a celebration of Advent, um, moving into times of Epiphany, Lent, they called it, Eastertide, um, Pentecost. And these times, these seasons, were calling up in us certain aspects of the Christian story. But the church wanted to say, focus on that. Think about these things. So Advent technically is the start of the Christian year as you begin to do it. So Happy New Year. <laughs> In this Advent season, the teaching team here at Oasis has chosen to use the serenity prayer to sort of unpack um, and discuss various emphases uh, and implications of this most wonderful time of the year. And so this morning I was asked to unpack the first sentence of that prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. Uh, when I was a kid, I was part of a community of faith that um, really had a victory orientation um, about everything, right? And we had this expectation that if there was any trouble that we encountered, it was to be viewed as an attack of the devil, and that God was ready at any time, anywhere, to do a drive-by miracle uh, for those of us caught in the fire swamp of this fallen world, right? That was kind of the imagery. So we contended for miracles. 
Lots of intense praying, lots of quoting of Bible verses, texts like Mark 9 where Jesus says, everything is possible to him that believes. The last thing we ever imagined was that there were things we could not change. To admit that that would actually be to admit the devil is stronger than God. See, that's kind of our, our mindset. So praying, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change would have been a prayer of unbelief for us. It was only much later as an adult that I discovered that um, our group was being pretty selective about our reading of sacred text, right? We were a group that wanted Easter without anything as unseemly or messy as Golgotha. Uh, you know, where the Christ cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We had no conceptual space for such moments. A key perspective that's embedded in this historical Advent season is the memory of such moments. The Jews who were waiting for the first appearing of Messiah, the appearing is what Advent means, Advent means appearing. They, um, in those centuries that preceded that event, they were deeply honest about the pain they experienced and the pain that they witnessed as a people. In fact, their honesty fueled their anticipation and prepared them for the coming of Messiah. And it's that same kind of ad, that honesty that we are actually to embrace as we think about the second advent that we anticipate, the second coming of Christ. It turns out that the advent season isn't just about joy. I mean, it has joy in the story, and there is a joy candle. But it's first about entering pain and the injustice that we human beings experience in the absence of his appearing that somehow that we experience all kinds of hurt and pain in a broken world and that we are in desperate need of an appearing. But being honest about pain and injustice, it just isn't very natural to human beings, certainly to those of us who have been brought up in any kind of consciousness of faith and victory. We don't need, it's just, we're pain avoiders. And, uh, and I think it's, we, we, it, we feel too polite to talk about this stuff like that. In fact, I think that when we hear this prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, we tend to think, okay, I can do that if I should, and then I will, I'll accept what I cannot change, and then we sort of drift off, thinking we've done it by the fact that we've done some sort of assent of agreement. But what, what if we can't be cavalier about that? This idea that we're going to accept what we cannot change. What if there's no way to do a quick acceptance, right? What if the path to acceptance is a rather tenuous, if not tumultuous, path? Back in the late 1960s, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was really um, in influential in the establishment of, of uh, things like the uh, hospice programs that have emerged in the last 40 years, she iterated five phases of grief that accompany deep loss. She wasn't just talking about the loss like death, even though death certainly fits here. But she was talking about the loss of any significant, any significant loss, like a, a loss of a, a relationship that was very important to you, the loss of a job, the loss of a dream, the loss of whatever. 
of expectations that you had had that just, they fail. And she articulated these five stages. The first one was, she said, when we experience loss, we tend to deny that we're experiencing loss. Denial. And this is the place when one thinks, no, 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 no. This is not happening. This just can't be true. And Kubler-Ross claimed that just like you can't stare at the sun without sort of looking away from it or you get blinded by it, the denial actually gives you some necessary space. That, that we actually need some denial in order to survive these deep losses. We can't just live there. We, we, we can visit, though, denial as often as we need to because it's an important part of processing to getting to a place called acceptance. The second thing that she said is part of the process is anger. That after you sort of experience denial, most of us experience anger. Why me? Where was God? I, I've been faithful to him. What happened? These kinds of feelings. The good news is God can handle our anger. <laughs> right? He, he doesn't, when you get angry, he doesn't go, oh, myself, I can't believe you did that. Right? <laughs> And we'll see that in some of the prayers that I'm going to read to you about this issue of anger. Actually, anger is a part, a natural part of our journey, and we can be angry without sinning. In fact, Paul actually said, be angry, but do not sin. He just said, you can't stay in it. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. Don't leave yourself in a state where you're in anger, because that will lead to sin. But anger is part of the process. Then she said, the third stage is called bargaining. This is where it's a tactic that tries to negotiate a shift in the problem in exchange for some correction in your behavior, right? So we may say something like, well, maybe this will change if I pray and fast more. Or, or if I just do more ministry and be a little more caring for others, maybe this will change. It'll change it. The rationale is the hope that if we enter into some sort of private agreement with God, that uh, he'll switch things up. So that's one of the aspects of what happens when we face things that we cannot change. We go through these iterations. The fourth thing is depression. This is a space where you realize it ain't going to change. And at least not in a timely way. And this means you're going to have to live with this loss. And that is not a happy space. This, in fact, I think is the toughest space to get stuck in. It's just depressing because you just can't seem to do anything to change it. And then finally, the fifth stage is acceptance. Acceptance is a frame of mind that's neither angry, is not depressed about the loss we face. We just basically come to terms with what we cannot change. And this is acceptance. That's what it means. But this acceptance shouldn't be mistaken for happiness or for joy. We've labored through a process of loss and through these very painful stages of grief and actually we're just at a point where we're ready to let go. In other words, acceptance is more like rest than joy. But rest that often feels a little like numbness. The phrases, or these phases rather, that Kubler-Ross claimed do not necessarily occur in order, nor do all people go through all of them. She said, quote, often people will experience several stages of a roller coaster effect, switching between two or more stages, returning to one or more several times before working through it. And her claim was that acceptance was the result of process. There are no shortcuts. 
This means that getting to acceptance requires energy and labor. So it turns out that one must walk through some dark night of the soul stuff to enter the serenity to accept what we cannot change. It's not an easy thing. The dark night of the soul was coined by the 17th century monk, St. John of the Cross, uh, to describe these seasons in our lives where we have no idea what God is up to or what's going on in our lives. We seem to be spinning out of control, careening toward oblivion sometimes with no evidence of supervision and, and with a sort of preponderant sense of being lost, <laughs> a place that could best be described as dread. And yet... St. John of the Cross asserts God is working there, maybe more than anywhere else in us, through this kind of emotional winter of our souls. Historically, according to the prayers of the Jews, they understood this business of grief. And it was embedded in their expectation of Messiah. They paused in their pain. They felt their pain. They pondered it, and they articulated it to God. In Judges 21, the whole nation of Israel is gathered, and they're gathered to complain to God. Imagine that. We're gathered this morning. Why are we here? We're going to complain to God. Listen to what they prayed. Quote, O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Psalm 42, 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? So honest, too honest for where I've come from. Psalm 74, 1, why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Some of you remember Psalm 44. This is the psalm where it says, the psalmist is talking on. I'm just giving you a couple pieces of it. He says, but now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our enemies. You made us retreat before the enemy. Our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep, and you scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from the sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. Our faces are covered with shame. You crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals and covered us with deep darkness. This is a prayer service. For your sake we face death, death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So interesting, Paul, remember, quotes this in Romans. Awake, O oh Lord! Why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? What are they doing? They're throwing up on God. You know, what's so beautiful about this is you only usually want to throw up near people you're pretty close to. It's one of those things, you know, you, know, you kind of want just a little privacy. Right? And yet they're openly throwing up on God. It's a declaration of intimacy that I think many of us who are only thinking of victory don't understand. Job 10. I loathe my very life. Therefore I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness in my soul. 
<laughs> no one ever discipled me with this text. <laughs> Theologians call this lament. It was considered an appropriate form of prayer and worship. Why? Because it took faith to do it. In order to lament, you have to believe that God is okay with us being honest. And, and just so you know, he already knows how you feel. That we can be honest about the discontent that we have and the deep sense of loss that we have. And the, the life is gifted to us by him, but the fact is sometimes it's unfair. But this kind of, this, this kind of lamenting, it refuses to pretend. And that takes faith. The first time I ever saw anything like this was this little Roman Catholic nun, Sister Giuseppe Marie. I used to work with her in college. Um, I was a college student, and she, had, she was in a high school, a Catholic high school, and I would go in as a, working with the Catholics. We had about 160 kids that would come, and that we had this really cool prayer meeting that was a Catholic charismatic prayer meeting. And so anyway, I would meet with her once a week, and we'd talk about what we were doing that week. One morning I came in, and she, she, was, she said, man, she said, I had a pretty amazing morning. I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I got in quite a tiff with God. <laughs> now, when she said that, you have to understand, I had no imagination for such a statement. I'm going, what? Well, what does that even mean? She said, well, she said, you know, I'm a woman. Yeah. <laughs> she said, and I'm, I'm a nun. And I, that means I'm married to God. I'm married to Jesus. I said, okay. And she said, I said, so what happened? She said, well, she said, I was sitting there and I grabbed my Bible and I took it and I threw it against the wall. And I said to him, when are you going to start treating me like a woman? I mean, I kid you not. I'm a little offended, a little freaked out. I had never heard anything like this. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, and you live to tell this story. And then she said how God met her. And, and I remember thinking, I wish I had that kind of thing. Because most of us are not close enough with people to be honest. You know, I think about my wife, Gail. You know, we married 42 years. We just had a 42-year anniversary. And uh, she's so honest, you know. So sometimes I'll do stuff, you know, because I'm not perfect. I think I'm perfect, but I just, I'm just not. And, you know, so look at me. Sometimes I just say, you know, right, I hate you just a little right now. <laughs> See, you can't say that to many people. It takes a real intimacy to be able to really show your stuff. And lament is about that. It's about having the kind of faith and, and that you can actually be honest. Sally Brown and Patrick Miller's book on lament says this, quote, nearly all the lament prayers move to some expression of confidence or assurance of being heard. The complaint without trust is not the lament. The complaint itself is an act of trust, end quote. Do you trust God enough to be honest? The truth is sometimes after we've prayed, after we've asked for others to pray for us, after we've stood on the promises with tenacity, without wavering, things are still not right. And enough time has passed that it's too late. And we know that we have lost. And many times, instead of opening up to God about it, as modeled in these prayers of lament, 
the unspoken reasoning goes, well, why would I complain? I mean, God didn't answer me anyway. And we end up whining and complaining to others instead about our woes, instead of coming to God honestly. And what do they try to do when we whine and complain to others? They try to fix us. Well, let's pray more. Let's study the Bible, stand on the promise. Let's get into a small group. Let's, let's trust God more. He's either trying to fix it. Why? Because we're Americans. We fix stuff. We, we win. We don't accept the things which we cannot change. We find out a way to change them. It's in our DNA. The unfairness, the pain, the injustice, the ugly things that touch our lives, we're interested in changing them. But what if God wants us to enter those things? What if he wants us to face him and ask, why are you sleeping? Why did you forsake us? When will things ever change? What if he wants that to come out of us when we feel that? Most of us have been let down by God. But most of us have never given that voice. What if that's spiritually unhealthy? See, what I'm suggesting is if you try to move into acceptance before facing and grieving loss you, that you cannot change, you may actually be moving into some sort of highly functional form of religious denial that has nothing to do with true faith. That if you say, Lord, help me accept, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, that could just be a little platitude that you just intellectually think you just did by the prayer. And it has nothing to do with something you can just do by a words that you say. There's a groan that's afoot in the world. That's active in the world. Romans says it this way, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to now, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we await for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What if on some level God wants us to enter the groan that we experience? To taste it. To mourn it. But we don't want to mourn. We want to move directly to victory. We want to, to the appearing of Messiah not to be with us in pain but to prevent it. But what if that's not possible? Now, don't misunderstand me. I mean, I don't willingly embrace pain that I experience. I mean, every time I experience pain, I pray to God, rescue me, Lord. Every time I taste pain and injustice, you know, and, and I call out to him, and sometimes it goes. But there are times that God goes quiet on me, and the situation does not change. And though I pray, and I fast, and I ask, and I knock, and I seek, it doesn't change. These are the times we're talking about. Hopefully, there are not that many in your life. But what if there's something really powerful about not skipping over that pain that doesn't seem to leave? Not trying to just run and pretend acceptance. What if seeing it and letting it bruise you, wound you, brings a kind of tone of spirituality that ends up being transformational in your life? I mean, the word vulnerability... That, that we like throwing around in our culture, it actually comes from the Latin word vulnus, which means wound. I would suggest that the, that the wound triggers 
something in us called mourning. And that mourning, when it has an expression, leads to transformation of the soul. Do you remember Jesus on this? Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who blessed are those who mourn. Seize it. There's something wonderful in the morning, even though it looks like there's nothing good at all in the morning. I think Walter Brueggemann captures this well. Quote, he says, Jesus sees that only those who mourn will be comforted. Only those who embrace the reality of death will receive the new life. Implicit in his statement is that those who do not mourn will not be comforted and those who do not face the endings will not receive the newness. I used to think it curious when having to quote scripture on demand, someone would inevitably say, Jesus wept. It is usually done as a gimmick to avoid having to quote a longer passage. But now, I understand the depth of that verse. Jesus knew that we numb ones must always learn again, A, that weeping must be real because endings are real, and B, that weeping permits newness. His weeping permits the kingdom to come. Such weeping is a fearful dismantling because it means the end of all machismo. Weeping is something kings rarely do without losing their thrones, yet the loss of thrones is precisely what is called for. End quote. This is the stuff of Advent. Somehow staring in the face of the pain and the injustice is a huge part of what prepares us for the hope of the kingdom that is to come. We need to stop and look at our disappointments and look at our losses, the unanswered prayers, where we have been offended or betrayed, where life has not been kind or even fair. And we need to recognize that things in this world are often not as God intended them to be. Plus, we need to press past our limited kind of provincial field of vision and look at the pain and the injustice of the wider world. Where the hungry stand in the midst of the overfed. War-torn places. With people that don't deserve it. Where innocents are unfairly prejudiced against or abused. Where industry is willing to destroy the planet for a dollar. Where domestic abuse goes unchecked. Where willing workers are stuck as the unemployed, and where those fortunate enough to be employed often get trapped into being overworked. See, all these things make us realize that we're in a broken place that's in need of Advent. The arc of the Advent story demands that we should sit in the pain long enough for the hopelessness and the angst to set in, which is where mourning is given its due. Though it's counterintuitive, this hopelessness and this angst is what sets us up for the peace and the hope and even the joy that the, that's present also in the Advent expression. Sometimes these come to us as a result of a grace that leads us to the acceptance of what we cannot change. A rest, a Sabbath for the soul. Sometimes these come 
as we gain an assurance that even though change may elude us now, it can't change now, one day we know that our God will put all wrongs to right. And we remember the text like Revelations 21 where the, the, the John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth passes away. There's no longer any sea. Doesn't mean there's not, you, you, actually sea in this biblical kind of language would be more not referencing so much water because who doesn't want water? But that the sea for them stood for the place that was chaos, no understanding. Uh, things are out of control. And so what he's saying is we, we're coming to a place where there will be no more chaos. Things will no longer be out of control. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be as people. God himself will be with them, and, they, and be their God. And watch, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, for us, we have to realize in this side of eternity, there are things that happen that will never be fixed for you. I think about Job. You know, everybody talks about the redemption of Job and the great Job story. I always think all his kids died. He got some new ones, but I'm sure he missed them. Went to his grave aching over what was lost. There are things that you will ache until you die or until he comes. It's just part of the story. This side of that, God welcomes your tears. God welcomes your, why God? God welcomes your woundedness. And somehow he will ultimately weave them into peace and hope and joy. So Advent leads us to dare to believe loss is not the end of the story. And if we Advent well, we will refuse to hate or dread what is. We will somehow see past it. This is the fruit of Adventing. So this Advent season, may God grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.